Good morning, folks, and welcome to the MediaPod episode number five. I'm Caroline Corbett, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief at MediaFile, and today we're going to be uh, having our first post-midterms podcast. Um, I don't actually know how much we're going to talk about the midterms themselves, but we're going to talk about a lot of the biggest news stories that have gone down since then. Uh, It's going to be a good time. Uh, I'm Michael Kohler. I'm an international writer for MediaFile here. I'm Shayla Green, and I'm the international editor for MediaFile. And I'm Rob. I'm the editor-in-chief of MediaFile. Thank you to our co-hosts, and now we are going to dive in. So the first story that we're going to be talking about today is sort of beginning to end what is going on with the Khashoggi story and getting some of the latest updates from our extremely, extremely talented and well-versed international editor, Shana. Thank you for that. Um, so the Khashoggi case has been a constantly developing case in which there's been a lot of he said, she said, or he said, he said versus uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia. And what we know now is that um, several uh, members of the European Union and other uh, European countries, including Germany, the UK, and France, have actually um, barred Uh, the 18 uh, Saudi nationals that have been accused of being involved in Khashoggi's murder. This has been seen as more of a cosmetic type of move, uh, more of a show of solace, but others say that it's at least more than what the current administration is doing, which is continuing its oil trade relationships with Saudi Arabia. And America is the Saudi's largest oil partner, so there's definitely big financial and economic incentives with this issue. Currently, there are uh, many members of Congress who are trying to push against Trump's relationship with the Saudi crown prince. And uh, one of our writers, actually Michael, uh, was able to write a fantastic piece on how the sort of circus show of coverage on Trump's reaction to Khashoggi's murder has overshadowed the fact that there are many people bipartisan efforts of trying to not only fix the relationships that we, the trade relationships we have with Saudi Arabia, and also seek justice and answers for Khashoggi's murder. So, Michael, I don't know if you want to jump in there. Yeah, no, I think a lot of the uh, coverage has been about the White House and the White House response to this, especially revolving around like Jared Kushner being kind of susceptible to Saudi Arabia's influence. I think there was just a new article today about that, about how Saudi Arabia saw him as an easy target almost. A lot of people don't focus on is that there is this bipartisan effort in Congress in the Senate. Senator Menendez and Senator Young from Indiana have drafted legislation that would basically stop the arms sales to Saudi Arabia that they're propagating a war in Yemen with. And so I think I think the Congress is using Jamal Khashoggi's death as a stepping stone to deal with a lot of the other problems we've already had with Saudi Arabia, but we've been like uncomfortable addressing up until this point. Bob Corker's also been really leading a lot of efforts with, I mean, his final days in Congress coming up, but uh, he has been really vocal about Khashoggi being um, still in the news coverage and still an issue for the administration to discuss, as well in the House as well, Brad Sherman, on a story that really should be covered more about how we're about to make a nuclear deal with Saudi Arabia. He is using Khashoggi's death as a platform to prevent those discussions. 
It's interesting that you talk about Yemen and um, nuclear deals because Khashoggi's death is not only tragic in terms of the fact that a, an American-based journalist was murdered by a foreign country um, for his work on that country, but also it redefines how we look at the Middle East in general. And it also talks about the, if um, economics or ethics are more heavily prioritized within our government. And that is a continuing debate that Khashoggi's death, unfortunately, it took the death of a journalist to uncover and to start this conversation, but it's a conversation that has ebbed and flowed in the news cycle and needs to be more consistently covered. Yes, I, I definitely agree with those sentiments, and I'm, I'm really worried about the implications for the coverage of the Khashoggi murder because I think that putting Trump's vocalizations about denying the fact that there was an almost undeniable role played by the crown prince um, in the killing of Khashoggi, uh, it, put, it sort of puts that spark in people's mind that there is plausible deniability when there is none. So I think that this has been an exercise for the media in how to explore covering something, um, something with such depth when there is clear right and wrong and there's clear consensus even among Republicans and Trump is sort of the sole outstanding voice. It's something that's very unusual, I think, in American politics and journalism coverage. And um, it's, as, as you guys have both made clear, it's very precedent setting um, for how we're going to move forward with that type of coverage in the future. It's also interesting because not only was Khashoggi murdered, but mm-hmm. he was murdered in such a gruesome way of course. that it that also sets a precedent as to how this administration allows his journalists, and by his I mean journalists who are affiliated with American outlets, as Jamal Khashoggi was affiliated with the Washington Post, mm-hmm. how he allows journalists to be treated. It's not just about revoking press passes or censorship or any terms of legal censorship as well with different documents asking pre what's it called when you tell a newspaper not to publish something before they publish it these are things that have happened in america but in other places journalists are being killed they are being kidnapped they are being held for years at a time so it really shows the rest of the world how america not only feels about press freedom but those who advocate for it Um, and i think that's another layer that a lot of uh, media outlets have not uncovered yet Of course, and something that I've always been wondering about throughout this saga is what would have changed if Khashoggi was an American citizen or had some sort of claim to being American or more Mm -hmm. more so than he did have? Um, Because the fact that he worked for an American newspaper should have been cause enough to have extreme backlash against Saudi Arabia the second we found out that it was from the highest level in order to murder him. And yet it's been sort of completely backwards But then I think about the whole Jim Acosta story and it becomes even more clear that they don't care about press freedom because it's it's been very blatant. But Mm -hmm. um, it's almost ironic that this is occurring at the same time as the Acosta incident, especially when they threatened to revoke his press pass again once a court ordered them to give it back and then just ended up dropping that entirely. And it's such a power move by the Trump administration to threaten that and just sort of let it fizzle out while they still had the last word in. Um, And I feel like they're aiming for the same sort of slant with Khashoggi, which just shows a massive lack of empathy. And I think 
finesse for international affairs, just generally. Truly, and it's also bad PR for the White House. Like, of mm-hmm. course, their base, and by their I mean Trump's, of course Trump's base, you know, is very supportive of 99% of the moves that he makes and um, the fact that he, quote-unquote, stands up to the media and doesn't let, quote-unquote, untruths, you know, surface. But it's really bad PR for the White House when they're seen to be not only suppressing the media, but not caring about the media when the media has been historically called the fourth estate. So it's just as integral part of democracy as the executive branch. And I agree that when you compare Jim Acosta to Jamal Khashoggi, it's very interesting because Acosta is a white American mm-hmm. and Khashoggi was from Saudi Arabia and um, not a citizen, but still affiliated with the Washington Post, which as you said, it should be enough. But comparing those two issues and you see the overall disregard for the respect and the responsibility of the press, it does send a pretty jarring message. Yeah, I think you were also bringing up a good point as far as like through a political science lens, I don't I don't understand what Trump and the administration has to gain by taking Saudi Arabia's side in this. Like I don't think anyone I don't think his base is too strongly so fully behind Saudi Arabia and supporting Saudi Arabia that like uh, rejecting them would harm his popularity with his base. I think ultimately this just ties into influence that Saudi Arabia has in that naturally with spending in defense and oil. Right, exactly. I feel like this is certainly one of those cases with the Trump administration where when all rational explanation fails, we follow (laughs) the money and we find out what's going on. So on that note, I think that we should move on to Michael's topic. Um, Would you like to introduce that? Right, so yes, I'm basing this off a uh, piece by Avi Bajpai on Mediafile this month talking about the administration's release of a very significant, I believe, something like 1,600 pages report of conclusions about climate change, and you know, it's the the administration's required reports to Congress on, it's called the Fourth National Climate Assessment, a congressional-mandated report that shows the effects and implications of climate change. The interesting part of this story is that the Trump administration, it was set to release it in December, but the administration um, sped that process up and released it the Friday after Thanksgiving on Black Friday, um, which the New York Times highlighted as a very blatant attempt to bury the story and to kind of wash it over in holiday and, you know, coverage of other things. And just, you know, releasing something on a Friday is also just seen as covering in general. Um, But ultimately, I think the interesting things here is that they have this, this report published by the administration that very conclusively says climate change is happening, it's going to harm Americans, it's going to harm much of the Midwest, much of Trump's base even, yet the administration still does nothing about it. I mean, the administration spoke out against their own report when it was briefly in the news coverage, saying that, oh, there's, it really comes to no conclusion, it's based off of the worst case scenarios, when some hundreds of scientists that wrote this were saying, no, we, it is very, very comprehensive and covers all of our bases, and still the administration attacks it as, you know, baseless. It's interesting because with these two topics that we've spoken about, press freedom, climate change, these should be nonpartisan ideals because... You would hope, yeah. You would think because press freedom affects everyone because everyone gets, everyone reads the news no matter what news it is. And with climate change, like you said, everyone is going to be affected by the lack of food, the um, 
extraneous weather changes, the lack of transportation or resources per city. It's one of those things that it should be taken seriously by everyone and have a lot of support behind it because it will affect everyone. And I don't remember where I read this, but some officials are calling climate change a national security issue, which is, I think, what you're getting to the bottom of. Um, because, like you said, it's going to affect everyone in the United States. And unfortunately, it's already affected people in other places like Indonesia and India um, and Greece. But unfortunately, when it comes to prioritization of issues, if it affects Americans, that's when we get involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, the media being honest about the lead for this story being intentionally buried um, is a great step forward in the whole the Trump coverage dilemma. So I feel like at the beginning of his presidency, this isn't something that would have necessarily been called out so blatantly. The fact that um, the White House just clearly intended to bury the lead on this climate report. They didn't want people to look at it. So they thought, we'll release it on Black Friday and everybody will be out shopping and doing holiday things and just not even give it a second thought. Um, and unfortunately, I believe that they succeeded in many ways, but it was also a success for mainstream media outlets, like I said, to start covering this, um, start calling it what it is, and if their, me if their news team can come to a consensus and say there is no reasonable reason not to believe that this was intentionally released on this day to bury the lead, um, then it should be reported as such. And while there is no way for us to prove that the White House did do this intentionally, there's very little precedent for releasing a report on a holiday, especially um, one that is actively being denounced by the White House. It's a very interesting media puzzle because I think that certain outlets wanted to uh, elevate the profile of the story to sort of make up for what the White House um, was trying to do in terms of burying it, but there's a fine line to walk there between elevating the story to its natural prominence um, outside of such an abnormal administration and over-elevating the story to, I, w I won't even say bias, but to... Um, sensationalize. Yeah, sensationalize it. That's, that's definitely true. And there's a really important difference between covering the story on the White House and the White House conflict and covering the report itself but I felt pleased to see that there was a lot of coverage of at least the major findings of the report alongside coverage of the White House's efforts because we have seen recently some instances where the politics will get covered more than the actual problem itself, and I'm glad there's been some pushback. Right. I think this isn't even the first example of such. I, um, I was just looking up this article where back in August or September they – the administration put out a finding where they basically admitted that there is going to be a certain amount of, you know, global warming. They they quoted seven degrees, which I think is um, actually in Fahrenheit, so it's we're not going to reach seven degrees warming in the next hundred years. Let's hope. Yeah. Um, but that was in Fahrenheit. But they buried this in a 500-page report about like transportation and the environment or something like that, where basically they said, yeah, this is going to happen. We're not going to be able to do anything about it, so might as well do this anyway. And I think that's another example of them kind of bearing the lead on that story. And I think this is just a larger trend with the Trump administration in general, not with just climate change. I think, like, in this past weekend of crazy news stories that we've seen, like, I don't know if it was pure convenience that Mueller was going to release two major findings on Friday, 
Therefore, Trump also announced two major cabinet picks on Friday morning and thus also a chief of staff resignation on Saturday and another joint chief of staff pick mm-hmm. on Saturday as well. A lot of things very conveniently happened this weekend as far as timing is concerned. I think uh, I think the um, appointment for the UN ambassador was absolutely timed out. Harder to say about the other two. Harder, hard to say about uh, Attorney General because the current Attorney General is under a lot of heat already. The acting Attorney General, I think it's pretty clear that if he doesn't go soon, he's going to get caught up in the courts. Um, but yeah, they, maybe they were like, oh, we could have done this on Monday, but let's wait until the Mueller stuff happens. Same thing with the John Kelly stuff. I think that's a, a fair point. I think looking at how news outlets dealt with this should, should also go beyond just like, did the lead get buried? But also going into, you referenced the obvious article, like this tension of how to cover climate change in a politicized era. How do you reasonably let conservatives like have a voice without disrespecting fact and reality? It, it made me think of a year ago, I wrote an article for Mediafile, kind of talking about, it was right when Hurricane Harvey hit. So the Weather Channel, obviously it's where most people go to get the weather and during a hurricane, it's the go-to spot. Um, but they never mention or talk about climate change uh, in their hurricane coverage. And the same thing goes for CNN and all these major news networks. And I was kind of wondering, why aren't we talking about climate change during extreme weather events? And I found this quote from the chief of the Weather Channel, David Scholl. And he says, I believe in climate change and I believe that it's man-made. But I'm not a big fan of the term, it's been politicized. So basically he's saying, I want to talk about climate change because I believe, I know, it's not a belief, I know, climate change is, is real, but we're afraid if we talk about it, that loaded and coded term could just get people to turn off the TV and stop watching and stop mm-hmm. caring. And it's a legitimate crisis that goes beyond stamping our foot and saying climate change is real because we have an entire political party who has convinced their voters to follow their lead and to follow the lead of climate change denial. And so we have this political crisis where we can't have a good faith conversation even on the frickin' Weather Channel, which is, if anyone should be leading the way on climate change, it should be the channel about weather. Yeah. Um, so, and I know weather and climate are different. Uh, I've, I've seen that. Let's be PC about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know those are different things, but I think it's worth talking about how do we go forward? Is, is the way to just not have opposition voices and just kind of flood the landscape with people who are on board? because then you, you turn off an entire swath of people who desperately need to know about this. And if you think about it in the context of hurricane coverage, who, who is CNN or the Weather Channel to deny people possibly life-saving information about a natural disaster just because the political climate has turned them away from you know, whatever, whatever they think they're hearing? It's a really legitimate news crisis. I'm not sure what you all think of that. Well, it's interesting because when you talk about like when a hurricane happens that is breaking news and things are developing constantly so there may not be and this is not an excuse or or justification but there may not be time to go in depth as to the cause of the hurricane or the cause of the tsunami or um and i think there's room for that after we know how many people have been injured how many how many towns have electricity you know like the basic like things that people need to know in order to survive in the moment and i think 
something that um, I don't know if the Weather Channel does well, but something that other news outlets do well is in the aftermath, after all the bodies have been counted, after the whole story is kind of like seen, yeah. um, they go in depth as to why did this happen, how can we prevent it. Um, even like with Puerto Rico, a lot of the aftermath coverage was FEMA screwed up and you know, this entire population of people were ignored and these hurricanes keep happening because X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. including global warming. So I think when it's happening, right. there's only room for breaking news. But I also think that there's so much chaos that news coverage kind of forgets to include that why, right. when, and how. The, the context. The context, exactly. And that makes sense because, like, if you think about other non-political breaking news disasters terrorist attacks. I mean, mm -hmm. imagine if there was a terrorist attack and they went on air and they were like, well, this is obviously because of instability in the region following the 2001 right. or the 2002 right. invasion yeah. from the Bush administration. Yeah. People would be like, I want to know if my family members are okay yeah. and like yeah. all that, you know, they're not here to hear the context. But you're right, at some point it needs to come and it needs to be the conversation. It reminds me of the way we hear about like gun control. Yeah. How it's like, this isn't the time to talk about it. But then so it feels like the time. When is the time? Right. Yeah. Um, Especially yeah. when there's violence every other week. Sorry, I just had to put that up. Yeah, that's no, like, you're, yeah. That's like when exactly when right. do we get a break? Yeah. Well, with I, that, it's like, unfortunately, with gun violence, there's a lot of things that are preventable, mm -hmm. and as we've seen throughout all the other countries in the world, you know. If you even look at Australia, they had one gun violence incident about 20, 25 years ago, and they've not had an incident since because they're right. like, one is one too many. But I think the difference between like these prominent issues like gun violence and climate change is that climate change in order to fix it is going to take such a long-term process that we mm -hmm. may not even see in our lifetimes right. we of may course. see the consequences in our lifetimes but we may not see the benefits in our lifetimes whereas with gun control it's like if you just pass some legislation and do some background checks we will see the benefits right. tomorrow yeah because tomorrow there won't be another incident so yeah. again it's it's very difficult because uh, climate change takes a lot of patience and a lot of strategy, whereas some of these other really prominent issues that are killing just as many people, if not more, um, have more preventable solutions. Yeah. And it just helps to remember that voters and people who make their voices heard in politics, you know, everyone takes their cues from the top. Mm -hmm. And in, I think a lot of the time in the media, there's a focus on kind of, well, how do we make sure that these people, like actual people, uh, not people who are in politics, but actual people, how do we make sure that they understand that they're wrong? Well, I mean, no one likes to be told they're wrong. This, the real strategy, how do we hold accountable those who are at the top and are, are pointing that mis misinformation downwards? So I think we over-exaggerate the number of people who like, disbelieve in climate change. According to a report published by George Mason University in Yale in 2018, seven in 10 Americans believe that climate change is happening. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, only about 15-ish percent believe that it's not happening. I mean, the, the difference between those two and then not sure or whatever. But the, the, the real issue comes in the, the amount of people who believe we can do something about it. So a much smaller percentage than 70% believe that we can actually do something about it. So it's not a matter of convincing more people that climate change is happening. It's a matter of convincing people that we can do something about right. it. But I think also, I mean, the main one of the main points Avi makes in his article is about this, you know, he titles it the both sidism of right. much yes. of the news coverage where they give half the screen to 
notably Rick Santorum, but just a <laughs> yeah. someone in someone on the right who does not or someone who is literally paid by, pay, pay, by yeah. corporate coal lobby. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and if anybody listening wants to find out more about the origins of this phenomenon and maybe even read something like a guidebook on how to hold people accountable because it's already been done. This is the interesting part is that this issue has already been comprehensively addressed oh, yeah. um, by most notably, I think, uh, the authors of Merchants of Doubt, uh, Eric Conway and Naomi Oreskes, um, and that was actually turned into a film, that, their book. It's like a New York Times best-selling book that completely breaks down how conservatives with ties to uh, fossil fuel industries and assets in fossil fuel industries astroturfed organizations to increase the appearance of climate change denialism, increase the, the perceived popularity, bring to prominence the idea that there's nothing we can do about it, even if it is something that's a problematic, and then exactly how they brought those ideas into the mainstream media, like you said, with people like Rick Santorum, essentially getting people who are not scientists or experts or who are completely bought out scientists. I hate to use that term, but it's just very blatant in this book that some of them are financed by the fossil fuel industry to go on and face someone who is devoted to climate science and actually has well, extensive knowledge and face problem. off. It's it's already been broken down for the media how they can avoid this sort Bring of scientist onto your onto Right, your exa- news exactly. I think one of the challenges of that though is that there is a certain barrier. I think um, there are some outlets. Ready, uh, yeah. Ready well, I mean, we can't just keep bringing Bill Nye on. Exactly. Um, wait, Bill wait, Nye wait, needs a break. A let me throw, let me throw yeah. her name into the ring here. Um, there's an awesome scientist based out of uh, Penn State named Michael Michael Mann. Um, I forget. Can, can yeah, you find out what his book is called? I like the book? name. Michael the Man. And it's so interesting how scientists are not seen as objective anymore right. when mm-hmm. they're scientists. Right. That, that, that's that's not the right Michael Mann. Michael E. Mann. So Michael Michael Mann is a he gets in a lot of kerfuffles oh. in the academic community <laughs> because there's this weird some scientists and academics have this weird idea like I'm just going to do the research and write a report and it's not my job to kind of get into the advocacy and he completely disagrees. Follow him on Twitter, a great follow. He does yeah. media criticism, he does political criticism and it's always focused on the facts and climate change. He's not a partisan, he is not a politico. He's simply a true advocate for climate change who I absolutely love. He has a picture on his website of him posing in a Steve Jobs turtleneck with some <laughs> some thick and healthy slices of wood. So if you if you like the idea What's of the name this of his man, book I'm already excited. Yeah, Madhouse go check Effects? It out. Yeah, Madhouse, Madhouse Effect is another the one about one. Uh, oh the hockey stick the hockey and the temperature tantrum. Yeah. That's a great book about kind of the <laughs> politics and Uh, A lot of stuff about climate change. Yeah, Hmm. and it's funny because when you advocate against climate change, you're advocating for mankind because we're all going to be screwed at the end of the day if there's no resources, if there's no medicine, if there's no land, if there's no oxygen. You know, it's not just about hugging trees and kissing puppies. You know, you're you're actually advocating for every specimen that lives here. Exactly, and the people that are often most um, affected by these global and natural disasters are indigenous populations, people of color, people yeah, living on the exactly. margins. So there's that human rights aspect to conservation as well, and that's not something that climate change deniers want you to know. Yeah. Right. I saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. She tweeted something about 
environmental racism. Yes, that's the term. And a bunch of people on Twitter who, from both parties, said, um, this is hilarious, liberals are finding new ways to complain or whatever. It's like, no, actually, there's plenty of science that shows that. Mm -hmm. Anytime the environment goes awry, the, like you said, people on the margins are always the first affected. That's, right. Even in the sphere of journalists who think that they have this issue down, I never hear that. Yeah. You never hear that this issue is going to affect the vulnerable the most. And I think that's just comes from a PR standpoint. And a lot of people in the media right now are very, very PR-minded. And they think if we say environmental racism, that will just be a dog whistle for like some PC liberal crap that people don't want to hear right. about. Exactly. And it will turn off anybody who's not an Ocasio-Cortez follower and devotee. And it's funny because um, I first heard that term in Leonardo DiCaprio's environmental documentary. <laughs> no way. So if Great, great, great film. It really yeah. is. So if DiCaprio could be like, hey guys, this we is talk real. about this. Yeah. You know, he's going out of his way. He's got plenty of money. He doesn't mm -hmm. need to do anything for the rest of his life. But yeah. he's going out of his way yeah. to be like, guys, these are the people being affected. This is how it's going to go down. You know, maybe we, the more conscious of us can also be a part of that exactly. mm -hmm. narrative. And just to wrap this up, um, I think what Shana was saying about sort of the eternal consequences of climate change and how it just seems like a certain faction of people don't care about them whatsoever, I would just reference Donald Trump's recent take on the national debt, which is, I don't care about it because when something really bad happens, I won't be here. So <laughs> I feel like that sentiment... Very wise words. Yeah, very wise words reflected among a lot of people who are in power right now. So moving on from, from that really great conversation about climate change, I just want to cover something that's a little, a little less timely but still extremely relevant and something that I think will be emerging parallel to the Twitter debate um, in coming coming year, which is that YouTube is being overrun by the far right. It's a really big problem, and we had a great, great, great article from Jason Rucker in the politics section at Mediafile about it in the past week or so. And something really interesting about YouTube is that it's becoming the next step after Netflix-style streaming sites for, for young people. I feel like it goes, cable is like a dinosaur now, Netflix is like the cool guy, and then YouTube is like what 15-year-olds are on. 94% of 18 to 24-year-olds uh, go on YouTube. So it's really ubiquitous among young people, which is why it's so terrifying that the alt-right community on Twitter, their most linked site, like by far, is YouTube. And YouTube is sort of unique because it's basically like the wild west of streaming content. <laughs> there are basically no rules. You can upload anything regardless of how popular it is. So, you know, not getting viewers is not a constraint and that helps really fringe channels take off over time. A lot of the a lot of the channels referenced in this article took like years and years to build up a really serious following and it's sort of like an exponential growth and then they end up with 250 million views this one guy who's he goes by sargon of akkad um but his real name is carl benjamin so don't <laughs> don't really know where that came from secret identity reveal. yeah yeah exactly so and he actually managed to get steve bannon to come for an interview on his show on his youtube channel and something that i want to point to specifically is the intersection between twitter and youtube because right now it's looking like YouTube's greatest source of 
viewers for this type of content is Twitter. Like I mentioned before, it's the link symbiosis is very serious. And how that's going to change Twitter in the future. So what we're seeing right now on Twitter, especially with mainstream news outlets, is I wouldn't say a reigning in, but sort of a cementing of their position on Twitter. As you all may or may not know, Fox News is gone from Twitter right now. They aren't participating at all in an effort to boycott Twitter's apparently not so quick response to people using Twitter as a platform to organize a harassment campaign against Tarkle Carlson. They're pinning a lot of responsibility on Twitter there and using that as an excuse to just remove themselves from the platform and do a boycott, which has proven to be fairly unsuccessful because they haven't really lost anything. No one misses them. Yeah, no one misses them. No one misses them. No one is crying for uh, for Fox to come back. Yeah, (laughs) And, And we're not Fox fans, obviously, but I, spoiler. I, yeah, spoiler <laughs> alert. They don't seem to be missed too severely, which is really interesting. But I think that it speaks a lot because, you know, we think of Fox News as the bastion of conservative content that has some veracity to it. So when, you, when we're thinking about Twitter now, it's mostly an interest in personal opinions and personal stories. And that's something that is reflected in the YouTube content as well. So essentially what, um, what Rucker says in his article is that research suggests that far-right videos don't simply provide a home to those with pre-existing radical views, but they're converting people as well. And many of them frame their arguments in the form of personal stories, almost in the way that you have ideological testimonies now being compared to product testimonies in marketing. It's an anecdote. It's anecdotal evidence. And that's becoming what makes people's ears perk up now. It's it's not tweets from mainstream news outlets. It's the humanizing right, it's, aspect. Yeah, it's the humanizing aspect. And yeah. like we were saying before, there are people who rise as tastemakers, and those are replacing news outlets in the minds of many people. It's interesting because, like, it's one of the things that you pointed out just now was the fact that the internet, specifically YouTube and Twitter, are providing refuge for people who would otherwise, they'd have their views and their opinions, but they would keep them to themselves. And now they feel empowered by other people who feel that way, and so they feel as though those opinions and views that undermine other people's existences are justified. And, I mean, look no further than the Pittsburgh shooting only a couple weeks ago, and the fact that the shooter was on Gab, and he, five minutes before he shot up the synagogue, was saying... Jews won't replace us, and I won't be replaced, I won't disappear, and things like that, and he had been part of these alt-right groups. And also with uh, Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford, she had testified that not only did Kavanaugh uh, allegedly sexual assault her, but her um, pain escalated when people on the internet started publishing her address and threatening Mm -hmm. her family. She had to move a couple of times. So it's not just about freedom of expression, everyone's opinions deserve to be on the internet. That's very true, but when those opinions and views are um, given a voice by other people who share them, then people can be harmed or killed or harassed. So these, um, these views, you know, are not just confined to the the internet, they have real-world effects. And I think that's something that when we talk about news coverage of social media, how it's expanding, how it's changing, 
we also have to remember that the way it changes is going to affect people in the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's actually, like, a safety concern as well. Of course. And with those safety concerns, you sort of think about the type of people who would be willing to engage in those sorts of verbal and physical violence against people they don't agree with. And those people throughout most of American politics, I think, would have been considered fringe. And now, um, like you were saying in the beginning, it's it's giving people a platform to talk about mm-hmm. that and normalize it. Um, and like support group. Right, right, right. A support group for, for hatefulness. And the thing about YouTube, when I said it was the Wild West, I really meant it because mm-hmm. there's very little recourse for saying borderline violent thing. You know, if you're not outright having hate speech, you're not going to get your content taken down on YouTube, and Twitter is becoming a similar place now as well. They, there are some changes being made to the platform, but overall it's it's pretty open to some, some fringe groups. And what they're able to do right now is to take the gap in their political understandings and what is being reported um, by mainstream reporters, reporters with credibilities and have vetting processes. There's nobody who is in their space who is producing content with that kind of verified background. And that's where all of these hobby content producers are coming in and they're now at the very top of the hierarchy because there is nobody above them. So now they're they're very serious public figures um, and there's almost no barriers and no vetting process to getting there. This is completely new, and media outlets who are classically verified are having a really hard time grappling with this. And I think the main thing with social media is that it's not black and white. Um, it's not about censorship or non-censorship. It's about oversight, so that the, this hate speech doesn't turn into hate crimes, and so that um, people who are on the fringes don't feel justified in uh, ending people's lives or undermining their existence, which I think free speech also has... Uh, not-so-free consequences, and that's something that social media struggles with all the time. And if you want to read more about this, go read Shana's awesome op-ed on MediaFileDC.com about the normalization of hate speech after the Pittsburgh shooting. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to MediaPod Episode 5. We're signing off, and tune in after the holidays for Episode 6. Bye! Bye!